I'm Tommy Salmons. This is Year Zero. Well, I'm back. I have been deep into reading and research. I don't know if you really consider it research. I was chasing a, a particular idea I had and going through all the materials that I thought were necessary. And, of course, my sleepy puppy, as soon as I start speaking, starts putting that cold nose on me. So this is going to be a long, fun journey, I can already tell. But I wanted to get into the government's role in propaganda, how people think, um, and all that. So I decided to kind of do an overview of Subproject 68 of the MK Ultra project. Subproject 68 was an interesting one to me. It was outsourced to a psychiatrist named Hewan Cameron um, in a hospital in Montreal, Canada by the name of the Allen Memorial Institute. I think before that it was called Raven's Claw, if I'm not mistaken. Something of that nature. Anyway. The MK Ultra is one of the most prolific sources of disinformation when it comes to the CIA. The shadow government has operated since before the formation of the CIA. In World War II, the agency was known as the OSS. And secrecy was not a secret among the agents that had served in the OSS. Many of the agents um, that started the CIA had operated in the OSS, including Alan Dulles, who was uh, the director of the CIA in the late 40s and 50s. MKUltra was a large-minded control experiment commonly believed to root from the idea that Koreans had learned brainwashing techniques from the Soviets. Um, this happened because there were a lot of soldiers that denounced the United States and actually claimed to uh, be loyal to communism. And so they figured the only way that any Americans, POWs or not, we're going to do this and to claim communism as the rightful economic system. They were going to have to be brainwashed, especially to denounce the CIA. On the, on the journey uh, from Korea, they, they went through this really desolate place and it come to find out that was Manchuria. It's a place that a lot of the soldiers said they felt like they uh, had been drugged and they didn't understand. And that was Manchuria. So then you get the idea of the Manchurian candidate from that. But in fact, the idea of brainwashing is rooted before prior to the Korean War. It's actually rooted in the trial of Cardinal Mizenti in of 1949. This trial was in Austria. Um, Carl Mizenti was on trial for uh, thought crimes, I believe, uh, for the most part. Um, the cardinal confessed to many crimes he'd not committed, and he sat in the courtroom with a dead, glazed look in his eyes the entire time. Uh, the CIA, the United States government, was convinced that he had been brainwashed. In fact, he'd been tortured, um, constantly tortured, uh, kept in sensory, you know, sensory deprivation, been beaten until he, you know, confessed to what the Soviets wanted him to confess to. 
So to combat the brainwashing techniques of the Soviets that the CIA believed they had, the CIA began Project Bluebird in April of 1950. The Korean War actually didn't start until June 1950. So you can see right there the timelines don't add up. Project Bluebird was the mother to Project Artichoke, which it was renamed in 1951. I think it was in August of 1951. And then in 1953, it evolved into what we know as MK Ultra today. If you look up Project Bluebird or Project Artichoke, more than likely you're going to find information on MK Ultra because now it's just all thrown under the same moniker. But it was it started off as one program in 1950 and then evolved into MK Ultra. Um, there were a lot of sub projects in MK Ultra. <clears throat> I've never seen any evidence of it. But one of the projects I consider to be at least parallel, if not a sub-project, but at least a parallel of MK Ultra is Operation Mockingbird. And we'll touch on that here in a little bit. So when it came to MK Ultra in 1953, Alan Dulles assigned Dr. Sidney Gottlieb to be the head physician in uh, in um chemical researcher on the project. Compartmentalization was key. It didn't take them long to figure out that they didn't want to know. The highest echelons of power just did not want to know what Gottlieb was up to. So they basically told Gottlieb, you know, every everything's on a need-to-know basis. If we don't need to know, then you don't have to tell us. And Gottlieb was fine with that because I gave Gottlieb free reign to do whatever he wanted to do in the name of science. <clears throat> Under Gottlieb, the project took on a life of its own. He introduced LSD and other experimental drugs into the project. Many of the drugs were tranquilizers in order to put the CIA's guinea pigs into prolonged comas in order to run tests on them. They were searching for a truth serum and, uh, and a toxin that erases memories in order to insert new instructions into a patient's subconscious. Gottlieb was introduced to the work of a psychiatrist that had history working with the OSS, Hugh and Cameron. In 1945, Cameron was experimenting mind control techniques on Rudolf Hess, a Nazi scientist that was in custody. When Hess saw his fellow compatriots at the Nuremberg trials, he had little to no memory of them or the atrocities they had committed thanks to the work of Dr. Cameron. Cameron was awarded the presidency of the American Psychiatric Association from 1952 to 1953. Then he became the president of the Canadian Psychiatric Association from 1958 to 1959. He was the president of the American Psychopath. Pathological Association in 1963. He was the president of the Society of Biological Psychiatry in 1965. And he was the president of the World Psychiatric Association from 1961 to 1966. So we're not dealing with some quack. You know, this is a guy that had been receiving awards. He was well-recognized, uh, world-renowned psychiatric doctor. <clears throat> Cameron had also been using drugs such as LSD and Cure Air, as well as a poison the pygmies use on the tips of their arrows. He'd also been depatterning and psychic driving to combat minor and major psychosis. He was the perfect CIA guy, if I ever heard of one. So in 1998, Canadian broadcast channel came out with a movie about Hugh and Cameron. The name of the movie is called The Sleep Room. You can find it on uh, you can find it on YouTube. It comes up. It's in two parts. All right, and this is based on the true story of Dr. Cameron's experimentation in Montreal. In 1953. 
the CIA began funding Hugh and Cameron's experiments in Montreal. Prior to that, he was really just he was really just compounding on the techniques that he had used on Rudolf Hest. So when he started publishing articles in psychiatric journals, Sidney Gottlieb was was drawn to him. And he had him having a history in the OSS, they decided this was the perfect candidate to to uh, work with with them and to assist them in their brainwashing campaign and to learn how to brainwash. In the movie, it portrays Dr. Cameron as being restless and and fed up with kind of the hands-off approach of psychiatry, the sit and listen and do nothing. And he was getting frustrated. And so he felt like he should be doing scientific experiments on these, on his patients uh, in order to cure them, not just listening to them and diagnosing them, which is basically what he was doing. Unfortunately, with with the the type of work that Cameron was in, the only specimen, the only guinea pig, so to speak, you could use were people, and they had to be living people. You weren't going to dig somebody up and you know psychic drive them and depattern them. You had to use a person that you could formulate a relationship with and conversation with, and and view the subject on a regular basis in order to see how, if there was progress and if your theories were even worth, worth chasing. Cameron was a pioneer of his field. He introduced many of the techniques the CIA determined to be useful in creating a super soldier or the Manchurian candidate. Dr. Cameron, Introduced the methods of sensory deprivation, electroshock, or electroconvulsive therapy, which he also called depatterning, and hypnosis. His hypnosis was more verbal cues. It wasn't like it, he was also using a lot of drugs, as I'd said, and 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 he was sending people into comas for. Extended periods of time. I heard one guy say that he was in a coma, comatose state for 56 days. And what he would do is this is where the hypnosis came in. His style of hypnosis was after you put these people in a, in a comatose state, he believed that you, if you had the person listen to a phrase over and over and over again, you could penetrate their psychosis and implant the phrase into their subconscious. So it's basically like you've heard, like if you... If you speak positive, you know, positively every day, constantly telling yourself, you know, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh dog it, people like me, eventually you'll be good enough, smart enough, and gosh dog it, people will like you. And so that was kind of the idea behind this. So obviously there is something powerful about making yourself believe in something so powerfully you won't let it be true. But but what Cameron was doing, at least as especially the way it was shown in the movie, it was really more of a clockwork orange style of brainwashing. He called it psychic driving. So he would, like I said, he would put these people in a coma and he would play a phrase over and over and over and over and over again for like 16 hours, just straight that same phrase or, or a particular sound or something like that. Um, he would use the electroconvulsive or the electroshock as depatterning. Excuse me. So depatterning consisted of 150 volts of electricity running through the patient's brain for one second intervals, six times per session, three sessions a day. This would go on for for um, around seven to eight days at a time. So you would depattern a subject 
for 78 days. This would basically render the person completely like dumb and mute. They, they were incomprehensible. They were losing their memory. Um, it was being just stripped from them, but they were losing cognitive abilities at the same time, not just memory. In some cases, uh, other psychiatrists that used a very similar style of depatterning or electroshock used it more extremely than even Dr. Cameron did. Um, there's a case of a lady named Karen Wetmore, and she was given this treatment uh, as a teenager after being raped at 13 years old. And so to help her with her depression, the psychiatrist in Vermont um, gave her, shocked her at 150 volts 30 times per session for 40 seconds at a time. So Karen, to this, at least uh, upon the series I saw on Karen Wetmore, she had very little memory of her ordeal. And if it wasn't for a Freedom of Information Act request in a 30-year battle with the U.S. government to get her medical records released, she would have not been able to successfully file a lawsuit against the federal government. So they were what they were trying to do is they were trying to use this electroshock, this depatterning, in order to shock the bad memories out of the person's head and then insert them through this verbal hypnosis and this constant verbal assault and repeating these phrases. And you were so you were trying to replace replace the bad with the good. Problem was when you're depatterning somebody, you cannot you can't just electroshock the bad memories. You know, but I guess they figured since these people were in states of postpartum depression or different forms of depression, schizophrenia or psychosis, that everything was bad. And that so you just had to that erasing it all was a net benefit in the end. I guess that would be my best guess as to what they were thinking. But this is what was happening. So that's pretty much a little short summary minus the Karen Wetmore, which is something I wanted to add in there, of, of the first part of the movie. Now, the second part of the movie gets into the lawsuit against the CIA in the 80s after Dr. Cameron had died. Dr. Cameron died in 1967. His funding was cut off in 1957. <clears throat> a civil rights attorney, Joseph Raw, and a young attorney, James Turner, took the case to hold the CIA accountable for funding Dr. Cameron's research and experimentation on his patients. Turner has, uh, James Turner has a website dedicated to their path to the settlement. Um, in the text of his site, he lays out how the experiment experimentation took place. CIA negligence in the funding of the Montreal experiments. Early in 1957, Dr. D. Hewan Cameron, director of the Allen Memorial Institute in Montreal, submitted a formal grant application to the Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology, a CIA front operating at the Cornell University Medical School in New York City. That application proposed to extend brainwashing experimentation, which Cameron described as follows. The intensive repetition, 16 hours a day for six or seven days, of the prearranged verbal signals. This was kind of, that's, you know, how he described that hypnosis session. During this period of intensive repetition, the patient is kept in partial sensory isolation. Repression of the driving period is carried out by putting the patient after the conclusion of the period into continuous sleep for seven to 10 days. Cameron also proposed to test drugs such as LSD-25 and other similar agents in depatterning his patients and to experiment with new methods of inactivating 
the patient during the repetition of verbal signals with other drugs, including Curare, a drug used in, a, in surgery to temporarily paralyze a patient's involuntary muscles. CIA negligent funding of experiments on unwitting subjects. The unambiguous standards for medical experimentation formalized at Nuremberg nearly a decade before the CIA subsidies to Cameron specifically required that informed consent be obtained from subjects in medical experimentation. Val and David Orlico swore that they had never consented to any experimentation at the Allen Memorial Institute, and indeed the Institute's medical records contained only a telegram from David authorizing Val's admission for treatment. The documentary evidence from the CIA contained no mention whatsoever of using volunteers, and it was clear from the public from the application Cameron had submitted that experimental subjects would be drawn from the patient population of the Allen Memorial Institute. Finally, the use of non-volunteers was the modus operandi operandi of the MK Ultra program and its two chief operatives, Gottlieb and Lashbrook. This practice was strongly criticized by two CIA inspectors general during the late 1950s and early 1960s. This strong circumstantial evidence corroborated the Orlico's story, strengthened this third aspect of the CIA's negligence in funding the experiments in Montreal. Now, the judge that was overseeing this lawsuit had many comments on the on the subject, but I, I just wanted to read to you a little bit of what he said and the facts that were laid out and what the judge was ab- actually able to, to use as evidence in going forward in this lawsuit. Excuse me one second. All right. Well, this is going a little bit quicker than I thought it would. All right. So in the suit, the judge wrote, many of the early projects involved the use of lysergic acid diathamide, LSD, and other drugs, and some involved experimentation on unwitting human subjects. A few tragic deaths occurred from these actions. He, uh, He lays out the the death of Frank Olson in here. And uh, the that's that's used as evidence that the CIA knew how dangerous these experiments were in in moving forward was the death of Frank Olson in 1953 when he was dropped out of a window. Defendant admits that as a result of one specific death, Frank Olson, critical letters were given by Director Dulles to the chief, TSS, Mr. Gibbons, the chief of the technical operations branch of TSS, Colonel Drum, and the chief of the chemical division of TSS, Dr. Gottlieb. Defendant's statement of material fact as to which there is no genuine issue. Additionally, after the Olson death, Director Dulles made it clear that these projects should be handled under adequate medical supervision. So, as as Alan Dulles is telling Sidney Gottlieb, I don't want to know. Don't tell me I don't want to know. He's putting in writing. We have to make this, you put this under medical supervision. We need adequate medical supervision. In 1955, the CIA... This is a continuation of the judge's comments, I'm sorry. In 1955, the CIA set up a secret front organization known as the Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology to fund further studies. CIA employee Dr. John Gittinger and Dr. Wolf from Cornell assisted in the program formation. Approximately a year later, Dr. Gittinger read an article published in the American Journal of Psychiatry written by Dr. Hewan Cameron from the Allen Memorial Institute of Psychiatry and entitled Psychic Driving. The article prompted him to invite Dr. Cameron to submit an application for SIHE, the Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology, research funds. 
The article described a technique administered to individuals who suffered from varying forms of mental disorders. Um, I know at least three of the women that that Hugh and Cameron treated with this particular uh, treatment were suffering from postpartum depression. That that's, was their extent, extent of their mental disorders. Another guy was having uh, – he was losing um, – the the use of uh, his legs, and so he was going through depression due to the illness that he was suffering. So these are the types of people that were suffering mental disorders. The technique involved the playback of a significant statement made by the patient, though the use of a continuous through, I'm sorry, they, it's misspelled on here, through the use of a continuous loop tape recorder. Certain methods were utilized to reduce defense mechanisms and de-pattern behavior. These techniques were later detailed in an application for research funds submitted to the SIHE. They included the use of particularly intensive electroconvulsive shock, sensory isolation, and drug-induced continuous sleep for many days. The application requested funds to improve the technique of heteropsychic driving and to investigate the range of physiological functions which can be changed by these procedures. Among the studies proposed was the use of chemical agents, including LSD, to depattern the individual. Dr. Cameron characterized his work ah, I went too far as the gateway through which he might pass to a new field of psychotherapeutic methods. On March 4th, 1957, the CIA approved the Cameron Grant as MKUltra Subproject 68 for the period of time from March 18, 1957 to June 30th, 1960. When CIA involvement ended in 1960, Cameron continued his work. Okay, so he had actually, as I had shown, told you he had actually started in 1945 and in he he began getting at least from what they could prove by the financial documents he began getting funding in 57 but we know that Gottlieb was using LSD cure air um, sensory deprivation in 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 1953, at the beginning of the MK Ultra experiments, so knowing that Cameron was operating from 1945 to 1964, and that Gottlieb started the MK MK Ultra program in 1953 under the direction of Alan Dulles, and and. Gottlieb was using many of these same techniques in 1953 that Cameron had first used on Rudolf Hess in 1945. Them having, and Hugh and Cameron having a background in the OSS during World War II. You can kind of see that there are some dots there that we're not getting. And the reason we're not getting those dots is because in 1973, on his way out the door, Richard Helm, who was then the director of the CIA, ordered Sidney Gottlieb to destroy all documentation of the program. They successfully destroyed all detailed accounts of all MKUltra experiments, but left behind a paper trail of accounting documents that eventually led to the revelations. And these revelations were really discovered by the Rockefeller Commission and the Senate uh, Select Committee that investigated the CIA in 1975. Thing was, is that when they discovered these, these accounting documents, they didn't know what MKUltra was. So when they called Sidney Gottlieb in to describe his work with the CIA, he thought he was in serious shit. But knowing that he had, you know, uh, destroyed all the documentation, he was like, somebody had to have talked. So he goes in, um, they, tra- they finally track him down, and he goes in and he talks to them, and he was extremely relaxed, 
because they didn't know what questions to ask him. So them not knowing which questions to ask him. Stop, Boogie. Stop. Them not knowing which questions to ask him allowed him to get away um, with his crimes. By the time one of uh, Gottlieb's expertise was was creating uh, small pills, suicide pills, right? And uh, he he designed these pills to fit in the uh, the frame of glasses um, or any any number of places that you could hide them, and these were for. Um, Soviet spies that the United States turned and he would give them these pills so if they were caught um, in the process of stealing Soviet secrets they could kill themselves so by the time the MK Ultra program came forward and anybody knew what was going on it was the 90s Sidney Gottlieb was an old man um, he had lived his life since 1973 completely away from the CIA. Um, Stephen Kinzer wrote a book on Gottlieb. I need to get it and read all of it. I know a bit about his details, but he's one of the real interesting guys that was in the CIA because he wasn't your typical CIA guy. He wasn't who you would expect to be in the CIA. He was a hippie, uh, a humanitarian, wearing Birkenstocks. You know, peace, love, and happiness. And then he was recruited into the CIA, and he had this sadist, you know, hidden within him. But anyway, um, by the time that he was, it, it was all uncovered, and people were figuring out what all was, what all had happened. It was the '90s. Um, he was due to go to trial or to testify um, about. These uh, the processes of the MK Ultra program. The day before he was set to testify, he suddenly died. So maybe he died of old age because he was an old man, or maybe he had one of those pills that he just took himself. Either way, um, the pill was supposed to be untraceable. It was supposed to be an untraceable poison, um, and it was supposed to work almost instantaneously. Um, this is what Stephen Kinzer discovered in his research on Sidney Gottlieb. Anyway, back to the lawsuit. Joseph Raw ended up settling out of court with the CIA. Nine Canadian patients were awarded around $90,000 each. Later, the Canadian government was forced to admit knowledge of the program and paid out $100,000 to 80 victims. Um, 250 victims were never comp compensated by, uh, by the Canadian government that did file lawsuits against the Canadian government. So we don't know how many, how many people were experimented on. I mean, best we can find is 80, but it could be in the thousands. We do know that there were thousands of people um, in the United States there was a full uh, village in France that was experimented on and hundreds of, of people there went insane. I think something like seven or eight people died. Uh, what was that? Pont Saint Esprit? Um, something like that. I can't remember exactly how to pronounce it. Anyway, the extent of the settlement. Okay. Uh, sorry. I, I skipped ahead. In 2017, the CIA once again settled a suit. This was just a couple of years ago. The extent of the settlement is protected with a non-disclosure agreement signed by the daughter of the victim. Um, the daughter of the victim, Allison Steele, is the daughter's name. I think the mother's name was Jean Steele. Um, and you can find videos of Allison Steele talking about how her dad had fought to... Uh, to settle this suit and it never happened and he ended up passing away before it did happen so she took over the uh, the fight for uh, re uh, retribution for her mother and so she was ecstatic that, that she actually won 
<clears throat> as I mentioned earlier, parallel to the MK Ultra program, the CIA was running another program called Operation Mockingbird. Operation Mockingbird was a propaganda project in which the CIA used media, written media, written radio and television to spread government propaganda through infiltration, partnership, and coercion. Though it is believed that this program is set, though it is believed that this program ended in 1973. It was 1976 when George H.W. Bush, as head of the CIA, officially denounced the practice of using media to propagandize the citizenry. So my contention is that these experiments never ended, that the death of the programs were not signals to end the experiments, but to end the official CIA involvement of these experiments by utilizing ties to academia and corporations in order to push the approved narratives contracting or outsourcing the operations to private contractors. There is evidence that Mockingbird, at the very least, evolved over the years and exists in some form today. And so so you got to look, you got to, so how do we, how do we get to today? Like, how do we look at today? Well, the, where I wanted to start was with the Smith-Mund Act of 1948. The Smith-Mund Act of 1948 made it illegal for the U.S. government to propagandize the American public, much like the Nuremberg Code, an ethics code for human experimentation stating that any human subject must voluntarily consent to the experimentation. It was ignored for the purposes of the CIA's experimentation on the American public. In 2012, the Smith-Mund Act was reformed as part of the NDAA. Granting the U.S. government permission to begin using propaganda on the public in 2013. H.R. 5736, Smith Modernization Act, introduced by Republican of Texas Mac Thornberry, states in part that it authorizes. Hey, I skipped too far. It authorizes the Secretary of State and the Broadcasting Board of Governors to provide for the preparation and dissemination of information intended for foreign audiences abroad about the United States, including about its people, its history, and the federal government's policies through press, publications, radio, motion pictures, the Internet, and other information media, including social media and through information centers and instructors. It also amends the Foreign Relations Authorization Act, fiscal year 1986 and 1987 was when it originated, and it prohibited funds for the Department of State or the board from being used to influence public opinion or propagandizing in the United States. The, modern, the smith Mund Modernization Act goes on to say that when propagandizing <clears throat> through any source, they are not required to reveal the propagation of government-approved narratives to the public. So you will never know when you are being told falsehoods for the benefit of the state, no matter how detrimental these falsehoods might, may turn out to be. And they're going to use the money they stole from you under the illusion of foreign relations to perpetuate this propaganda on you. This, I, I just keep thinking Russiagate. That's all I can think of when I re read that. Russiagate. That's all I can fucking think of. That it doesn't even fucking matter. I mean, a lot of people would, you know, would go and say, COVID, um, Black Lives Matter. You could put you could put any number of things into this, and just say this is the government could be doing this, and we would have no way of knowing. They they don't have to tell us. So prior to the introduction of the amendment. CBS released an article July 11th, 2011, entitled Social, Social Media is a Tool of the CIA, Seriously. In the article, Jim Edwards introduced his readers to InQtel, a CIA venture capital firm that invests in new tech startups. Most of these investments go to analytics companies fishing your data for information they may then turn over to the CIA or the FBI. A lot of times they go through the FBI before they go to the CIA. Sorry. Boogie's in the trash. Come on. Get up here. Come on. Get up here. Lay. Lay. 
Edwards reveals that the CIA had been investing in Google since 2004. The InQtel website brags for 22 pages of all the tech companies that it is invested in. In an article by Lee Fang published by The Intercept, the CIA is investing in firms that mine your tweets and Instagram photos. Fang targets four firms that specialize in social media data mining and surveillance. Data miner, Geofedia, Pathar, and Transvoyant. He also mentions Palantir and Lab 41. Palantir was founded by uh, Peter, Peter Thiel. Excel, Dynology, Global Strategies Group, Clearforce, and dozens of other data analytics and behavioral science companies have also been named by people as working with the CIA as contractors to extract data. Another CBS article provides information ar around WPP, a monolithic advertising firm in the CIA. WPP agency takes funding from CIA investment unit. This was the second time WPP had gone into bed with the CIA. This section, this time, it was their technology side in which they were scanning data in order to better, better create ads for the public. There were also articles pointing out a 2001 relationship between WPP and the CIA. So understanding the mining operation is key to understanding the propaganda operation. If you watch the documentary, The Great Hack, they go through the Cambridge Analytical scandal and uh, the use uh, on Donald Trump's campaign. In 2016, Donald Trump hired Cambridge Analytica, a data analytics company, now insolvent. Though the board has started a new data analytics company, Emmer Data. That's E M E R D A T A. It's the same board of directors. And it's also the same board of directors of the mother company, SCL, which acted as a military contractor used in Afghanistan and Iraq to run PSYOPs. Cambridge Analytica collected data data on every American voter, claiming they had at least 5,000 points of data on every American voter, and were able to successfully build a profile on each person. They then ran an AI program that constructed ads that were designed specifically for each timeline, therefore creating the idea of individually targeted advertising. These ads were to be phrased differently based on your psychological profile. Not only were they able to do this, but they were able to accurately predict where and to whom to send these ads. First, they targeted swing states. Then they set their aim only on voters that were on the fence, uncertain or persuadable. They were using your news feed to read your mind and predict your activities. This is how many of the ads you see are created on social media. They are specifically designed for you. How did they get your data? Well, this is fun. At first, they just buy it from Facebook, but eventually they made a new kind of tech and data collection idea. They designed an app to operate on Facebook that would have you willingly give them your data. Have you ever played one of those games on Facebook? Have you ever filled out a survey on Facebook? Chances are these are data mining operations meant to predict your purchasing choices or your voting choices. Not only did you hand over every piece of your own data, but you also handed over every piece of all of your friends on your friends list data. From there, a psychological profile is built on each and every one of you and the targets are chosen. A lot of people suspect Facebook working with the government. I don't doubt they do their own analytics and hand over anything they think necessary. In fact, it's easy to prove they have ties. Peter Thiel, a well-known investor in Facebook, was the founder of Palantir and received money from the CIA in 2004 through their InQtel um, venture capital firm. An early funder of Facebook, Excel Partners, James Breyer, sat on the board of directors of military defense contractor BBN with NQTEL's CEO, Gilman Louie, in 2004. 
And Howard Cox, the head of Greylock Partners, another early investor into Facebook, served directly on the InQtel board of directors. And not to mention... Let's not leave it out. In 2018, Facebook partnered up with none other than, ta-da, the Atlantic Council. That's right. Home to Henry Kissinger and Michael Hayden. Not to, not to leave out Sally Painter. And don't forget the CEO of Burisma and the people that like to give Joe Biden medals. Is Facebook another experiment on the American people to monitor the way sensory overload may be used to create anxiety, a common symptom of sensory overload, forcing them to turn to drugs that then deprive their senses and mold their mind with their psychotropic side effects? Or is it just a tool that some abuse and suffer consequences of? Is fake news a social media propaganda tool the CIA determined they could utilize once the analytics and behavioral modification techniques were developed by data scientists? I'm not sure of a vast conspiracy, but what I can tell you is that analytics companies are mining your data for the CIA. Psychographics and interactive internet activities are being used to shape your ideas and actions. And intentionally or not, the CIA has its mind, has its mind control tool. This time it is used without drugs and torture forced upon the the patients or the guinea pigs. And it is so effective that you voluntarily participate in the psychic driving. Ignore any and all negative aspects it has upon your life. You're addicted to Facebook? Eh, whatever. You're irritable? Eh, whatever. You're anxious and suffering from insomnia? You can't focus. You're on psychotropic drugs. You procrastinate like never before. Technology has become your engine of information from the day of the calculator to the time of the smartphone. You've used your mind less and less with every innovation. And the brain that was once so productive and creative is rendered impotent under the persuasion of those that wish to control you, your purchases, your knowledge, your knowledge and your ability. And now my shit is gone. So as you continue your social media relations, whether it be Twitter or Facebook, Instagram, Gab, I don't care. I don't care how small the platform is, Mines, it does not matter. There are companies out there paid that are collecting your data and sending that data to the CIA so that the CIA can come up with specific propaganda meant to target each individual and therefore get you to move the way that the U.S. government wants you to move and act and obey. Is the mask CIA propaganda? Is Black Lives Matter a psychographic or interactive internet activity? Is Russiagate. What is the CIA involved in? What we usually call disinformation campaigns, what we usually refer to as disinformation campaigns. And it seems like usually it's a decentralized single unit. QAnon, you know, could be uh, an example of this. Or QAnon could just be an openly blatant propaganda tool that all the QAnon fucking followers are too goddamn stupid to even realize. Either way, this is an extremely sophisticated method of inserting government propaganda into the minds of the public. And this is the trillion dollar a year propaganda machine at work that people like me or Pete or Scott or all these podcasters, not all of them, some of them might be CIA propagandists, but a lot of, the, a lot of us podcasters are trying to break through this wall, and this is the problem that, that we're running into. So that's what I came up with. That is how I see 
so many links between the experiments, the MK Ultra experiments, and the digital age, especially Operation Mockingbird and uh, Subproject 68. That's that's how I tied them all together. You're no longer being dosed LSD and put into sensory deprivation, right? You're now being hit with sensory overload so that you voluntarily take a psychotropic drug that depresses your senses. You're no longer being propagandized in the same old-fashioned mockingbird way. What you're running into now is data analytics campaigns specifically designed to target your specific psychological profile. So these things have all evolved over the years. And to, to separate, to say, well, these programs ended and they decided they can't brainwash that they can't, psychic driving doesn't work. Mind control isn't a thing. Look around you. They start when you're a kid. They get you in school. And they start planting these ideas in your head from the age of five years old. And now they found tools that you will voluntarily use in order to allow them to continue planting this propaganda in your head long after you've left the schoolroom. This is the perfect way to create patriots, to create factions, to create friction, to create a civil war if need be, if desired. These are the perfect tools to manipulate the American public as a mass into acting any which way they're told to act. So, maybe lay off the social media, guys. Just saying. Anyway, I took a lot, I, I, I took a lot of show notes for this. I, I, I copied all of the articles and the sources that I used for this. I put it, I'm putting it all on the Libertarian Institute, year, uh, libertarianinstitute.org slash backslash year zero. This will be episode 127. You can go there. You can see all of this, all the information, all the articles I found, articles uh, from 2009, 2011, 2012, 2016, all the way up to today. And... Uh, I hope y'all enjoyed this one. This was a lot of fun for me. This was like stuff I'm really interested in. This was extremely fun for me to put together. I'm sorry it took me two weeks to do it. It's really hard to drive a truck full time and and go through all these types of things. But I hope y'all enjoyed it. I'm Tommy Salmons. Late. <laughs>